we're going to continue in our sermon series we just started last week titled Exodus. And as I said last week, if you uh, guess, that means we're going to be studying the book of Exodus. You're right. So grab your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus with me this morning. We're in chapter one still. Should still be, I believe, on page 53 of the Pew Bibles, um, right around there. If you are using one of those, you can grab that. Turn to Exodus chapter one. We're going to pick up where we left off in the text last week and continue into this really epic narrative that we're going to get to explore over the next several weeks. The title of this second message here in our series on Exodus is titled, Who Do We Fear? Who do we fear? And we're going to pick up in Exodus 1 in verse 8 and see what we mean by this question. Exodus chapter 1 verse 8, if you're in the text, says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We ended on this text last week. This was kind of the, the, the capstone verse from the book of Exodus. We talked about how Exodus is the continuation of a story that began in Genesis. We, we can trace this story from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Joseph. But as I said last week, none of those men are really the point of the story. The book of Genesis is not just about those individuals. The book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, really all of the Bible, it's ultimately about the God that they served. It's his story that's unfolding as he's interacting with the world. It's ultimately about what God is up to. And each of these men have an important role to play. They're a human figure that we may look at dies in Exodus. After kind of looking a little bit at the story of Joseph, to see that here's a transition being made where this whole generation, this whole focus that's been existing in Genesis, that's dead. They're gone. And now a new era, a new part to the story is unfolding. And this text gives us the sense that it's going to be not perhaps the happy story that everyone would want naturally, but rather a story of conflict. The new king over Egypt that's introduced here, he's not going to be like the king of Egypt that we would have encountered in the story of Joseph, the one that Joseph knew and served under. Hundreds of years have passed from that time, and the growth of the family of Jacob have gone from 70 people who became immigrants and moved into the region of Goshen there in Egypt. Now, those people are not 70 anymore. They've expanded quickly and exponentially. They've filled the entire land there. The blessing of God has been upon his people, fulfilling the promises that he had made to bless them and grow them in that way, as we talked about last week. But this new king over Egypt, he does not know Joseph. And most importantly, he does not know the God who Joseph worshipped. And so he begins to fear this family that's growing in this region of Egypt. All these people that are multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And he fears they may not serve him and his goals. In fact, he convinces himself that these people living there actually are a threat to him and his people in Egypt. So he decides that he will deal shrewdly with them. And we read of this in the next few verses. Exodus chapter 1, look at verses 9 to 11. So he, this is the king of Egypt, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." So notice this response here in the story from this Pharaoh. That's the, the title the Egyptians had for their king. Notice how he's responding to seeing, I'll make you a mighty nation. Look up to the stars, count them, promise. The sand on the beach, count them. You'll have more descendants than that. As the Lord's fulfilling that promise, this Pharaoh responds very differently than God would have. Dr. Philip Graham Riken 
writes this. Pharaoh is the very picture of man in rebellion against God. He resented God's people, rejected God's promises, and resisted God's plan. In the story of God that unfolds through the biblical narrative, front to back, it's one unified story about God. And that story continues, as we talked about last week, throughout church history broadly. History unfolding is still the story of God. And today, right now, we're part of this one story that's unfolding even today. And if you look at the Bible, and if you look at church history, and you look even at the moment we live in now, this lesson should be clear to us. Sinful people respond to God and his work in this world like Pharaoh, with resentment, rejection, and resistance. See, the Bible makes clear People who are not submitted to God, who do not fear him and worship him, they're not living neutral lives. They're actually hostile in their hearts and their minds towards God. In fact, the Bible would call people in that state enemies of God. We have to be really clear on this. There is no middle ground that exists in this universe. There's no place, there's no people group that exists that gets to play Switzerland and declare themselves neutral in the conflict right? There's not God's side and the devil's side and then this big middle ground where people can kind of hang out before they choose sides. That's not the way it works. Colossians chapter 1, we've walked through the book of Colossians together as a church. If you haven't seen that series, I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons that we had through there. We've studied through this. So Colossians chapter 1 makes really, really clear. There's only two sides. There's either being a member of the kingdom of light, submitting to God as your Lord and God and ruler, following his ways, living in his kingdom, or a person is part of the domain of dark, doing evil deeds. There's only two sides, only two kingdoms, no middle ground, no neutrality. And the Bible goes even further than that to make very, very clear to us that the natural posture of man, the natural position, the natural domain to which you and I belong, where every person starts out when we enter this world, this broken world that we live in, is that we're in the domain of darkness, ruled by sin, captive to sin. Everyone is born into the domain of darkness as an enemy of God because of our fallen nature. Many passages in the Bible make this clear that there's only two positions. James 4.4 4 tells us, O oh, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Not neutral, an enemy. We must know that. What James is actually doing is he's rebuking those who would act or think there's neutrality. There's a place to stand kind of in the middle between the world, between God. You can pick sides. No, there's not. Paul repeatedly says the same thing in his letters too. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, for example. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This hostility is the default position of all who are not part of God's kingdom, but rather are members of the domain of darkness. All who do not submit to him are at war with him. They are his enemies. And to stress the universality of this and how this state of rebellion is so much the natural posture of mankind that nobody starts out in the kingdom of God by default because of your family line or because of maybe you were born literally in the church. That doesn't make you by default a, king, a member of the kingdom of God. You start out in the domain of darkness. Apart from God's grace, that's where you stay. Listen how Paul says it in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. 
where he levels the playing ground and really accentuates just how depraved we are. No one, no one seeks for God. All have even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruins and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, Paul says, is the state of humanity apart from the gracious intervention of God's love in a person's life. So in just five verses from there, when Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we're supposed to understand it's not that you've just barely fallen short, that you, you just, just sort of missed the mark. You're almost there, but not quite. No, what we're talking about is you and I, naturally, we're not even close at all. The standard that's set there, the gap between where we are and what God says, it is so massive, it is so insurmountable. Our natural position is rebellion and rejection of God, not wonder and worship the way it should be. We have to understand how serious the starting place is, how dark the starting place is to really appreciate the light and the glory of the kingdom. We have within us enmity and hostility towards God and towards his people if we are not one of them. It's epitomized in this moment of this grand story of God that's unfolding in Scripture in this figure of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who thinks and acts like he himself is a god. Like he does not have to submit to the God of the Bible that we know. He doesn't have to follow him. He doesn't have to worship him. He doesn't have to listen to who he is. He's going to be God over his own life and his own people. And so the people in Goshen that are there that are worshiping the one true God are a threat to him because they claim to worship a God greater than he is. So Pharaoh, because he does not fear and worship the true God, sees the people of God receiving the blessings of them with cruelty. He begins to inflict them, the text says, with heavy labors. So up until this point, this whole family, they spent their lives being shepherds and being farmers, cultivating and growing things and caring for things. And he takes them out of those jobs and he instead makes them manual laborers, slave labor, to try and break their spirits and weaken them. Look at verses 12 to 14. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in their fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This repetition that Moses puts in here to describe how bad and how hard the labor was is intentional. The purpose of this persecution of the people of Israel was to be harsh. They were intending to be intense to break them, and they didn't ever let up. They only kept increasing it. And yet, the text tells us, as they continued to do that, the Lord kept blessing them with multiplication and growth in the midst of trial and persecution. In fact, the harder they were oppressed, the more the Lord blessed them. Then the story turns even darker. Not only have they been taken from, they had been invited in all those years ago, they had been given land, they had been given a place to spread and grow and prosper. Not only have they now been made into slave labor, but the story story gets far, far worse. 
and exposes a terrible connection to our own day and age in this country as well. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now this coward of a king who fears the people of Israel, the Egyptians, but now because the king is hard labor towards being shrewd and enslaving them to do these different things, when it fails there, his depravity moves forward. He doesn't repent of his sin. He doesn't acknowledge the blessing of God continuing in spite of his persecutions. He takes it further and he orders these medical professionals to kill all of the baby boys that are born to the Israelite people. Understand this morning, this, what's happening here, is murder of the most heinous kind. For those to be people, to be put in the position of being trusted to deliver a baby into this world, to care for and assist a mother bringing life into this world, for them to look at a child being born and to kill it discriminately based on its gender that's discovered at birth is horrible. And that order comes from a depraved sinner who is reprehensible in his rebellion and rejection of God and his ways. But there's a connection to us today because tragically what Pharaoh ordered is vastly overshadowed by the abortion industry at work right now. See here, Pharaoh's ordering that babies would be murdered at birth. Today, the abortion industry doesn't even wait that long. The baby can be murdered in the womb at any point and go, go to the website for Planned Parenthood or look at their literature and it will say, the earlier the better. And the world today that we live in acts like that's somehow less murderous or less evil than what Pharaoh did. It's not. It's not in the slightest. It is reprehensible evil to murder a child no matter what developmental stage he or she is at. Again, Philip Graham Riken rightly says this, Wherever there is a reign of terror or a culture of death, Satan is trying to destroy the work of God. The slogans change, but the sin remains the same. Whether it is Adolf Hitler and his final solution for eliminating the Jews, movement in the West, opposition to life is, you know, when the is hatred of God. See, now when the Bible records this evil work, these orders given by Pharaoh here, it should be deeply shocking to the reader to see such evil recorded. But people today, in our world, the moment we live in, in our society, the conscience is so broken and hardened all around us that for secular people reading this text, the question is not really, wow, how could he do such an evil thing? The question is, why would they even wait till birth before they murdered the babies? This is a real and terrible evil plague that is in our world today. The abortion movement, which calls itself the pro-choice movement as a matter of disingenuous and deceitful branding, is every bit as evil as Hitler's final solution towards the Jews were, every bit as evil as communist China saying you can only have one child, so pick the one you want because the others are going to die before they're born. So let me be really, really clear. Planned Parenthood is an evil organization. They do wicked and abhorrent deeds. And they freely admit and celebrate murdering 354,871 babies last year alone. 
They put that right in their annual report. Look at what we've accomplished as we've murdered 354,000 babies. They murder more children every year today than Pharaoh could have ever dreamed of killing when he gave this order. But people today are not even shocked by it. Not even bothered enough by that reality to do something or say something. The reality is many people are even scared to call out this wicked sinfulness as I have just done. To denounce organizations like this. Because this type of stuff is so accepted in our culture today from the top down that to stand against it or speak against it in any way is almost unimaginable to the sinner in our world today. This is a terrible, terrible evil that God's people faced in Exodus 1 and that we face on steroids today. Because this world is filled with and run and his ways and they are reprehensible in their rebellion. Going back to Exodus 1, after this is given to us, this picture of Pharaoh and what he is ordering and his sinfulness that's coming out, we find in the text there are also some heroes that God raised up in that day. And how they respond to his order, they make it really clear whose side they're on, which kingdom they belong to. Exodus 1, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. That's bravery. That's a heroic response to evil in the world. The the two midwives that are mentioned by name here, they're most likely the midwives who are in charge of other midwives. The size of Israel when they came in, like we talked about last week, was 70 people. We're far past 70 people now. In fact, in just a few chapters, we'll get a number for the men of Israel. Numbers over 600,000 men. So that's just men alone. You start to add in the number of women, the number of children there. You're looking at a population of around 2 million people, conservatively. Two midwives cannot handle all the births that are happening as God is blessing the nation, with this growth, right? So most likely these two women, they're, they're kind of the charge nurses or they're the administrators over others. And they refuse to carry out Pharaoh's orders. And so those who work for them refuse to do that. The women here stand up for life and refuse to murder these babies. They are the true heroes in this section. And that's the kind of courage that we need to see in the world today. Because sadly and tragically, despite all the medical advancements that we have, see, they had to wait till the baby was born to to see, was it a male or female? We can know just weeks after conception. But despite all the advances we have, despite being able to see the baby on ultrasound, despite seeing the movement, seeing the growth, tracking all the development, everything we know and have known for quite some time, the medical professionals of our day in the last few decades have caved on this issue in the West. God, instead of following the orders, we would not have nearly the same number of murderous abortions committed in our world today that we have. But that's not where we are. Because instead of following this example, they followed the path of Pharaoh. And understand this morning, it's because the depravity of mankind is so deep and so universal in us. From Pharaoh's day to right now, this is where humanity is. Many go out and carry out evil orders like this and live out evil desires like this. So we're in the midst of this horrible period of time that should grieve us, all of us, when, that we live in a time in history where the murder of 354,000 babies by one company in one year alone is something that our culture would celebrate. 
It should grieve us that our culture, it should anger us our culture is stupefying itself by the rhetoric of using, using euphemisms so that people today aren't even bothered by that. These women in Egypt, they didn't give in though. They obeyed God. They understood God had given a command. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. The Lord had said to Moses that humanity must not commit murder one to another. And he rooted and grounded that command in the fact that all men and women, all babies, no matter if they're in the womb or out, are made in his image. And so they knew that and they defied the Pharaoh. They chose life over murder. And then they even act to protect those by trying to deceive Pharaoh and kind of, kind of mocking him, really. You should read these verses in 18 and 19, and there's some humor injected in there. They're kind of making fun of Pharaoh and the Egyptian women when he questions them as to why are there still baby boys being born. I told you, eliminate them. Their response in verses 18 and 19 raises some real ethical implications for us. As Christians, what, what is right to do? How they respond when they are questioned is to deceive Pharaoh. The point's really debated on whether or not you and I would be morally right to lie and deceive an enemy like that. And there's scholars and there's pastors that I love and deeply respect tell the truth. Others say it's perfectly justifiable to deceive them and try to protect life, to value life more in that case. I believe these women were right in what they did. I do believe it's right for Christians in extreme circumstances like this to work actively against evil to protect and to hide those whose lives are vulnerable and in danger. I think it's true for these women. I think it was true for Rahab in Joshua 2 when she protected the spies who came in. I think it was right for all of the Christians who hid the Jewish people when Nazis came in in World War II and said where the Jews were taking them to kill them and they would hide them to protect them. I think in every case, they did what was right. And I think here, the text gives us a sense that what they had done was right because of how God responds to their actions. Look at verses 20 to 21. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That's the root of why they did what they did. And that's Super important for you and I to get because this is not moral relativism. This is not just saying, well, you can decide to tell the truth or not tell the truth. It kind of, it kind of just up to you. No, we're saying we should be people of the truth. But when extreme circumstances face this, when we're motivated like they were out of the fear of God more than the fear of a human being that they stood before, they chose to defend life. They chose to refuse to sin against God and commit murder. Their motive was obeying God rather than just defiance of Pharaoh. It wasn't pride in them that led to this reaction. It certainly wasn't that they were seeking an easier life. It wasn't nationalism either. They weren't, there was no racist thing here. Well, Hebrew people are more valuable than Egyptian people, so we're going to do that. No, it had nothing to do with any of that. All it had to do, the text tells us, was the fact that they feared God. They knew his command not to commit murder. They feared him more than they feared Pharaoh, who could have killed them in that moment. And that led to their like this today. We fear, and who do we obey? And the answer to the first one will give you the answer to the second one. The midwives feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh. So they obeyed God's command not to murder instead of the Pharaoh's decree. And that pattern is set for us not just in the midwives, but in so many others throughout church history as well. 
in Scripture. We can look at many examples. Let me give you just a couple. That we should obey God rather than obey earthly man or power when the two are opposed to one another. Many, many years later from this time in the book of Exodus, we find the Jewish people in captivity, in exile, in Babylon. And at that point, three Hebrew boys stand before another king, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who demands, you will bow down and you will worship my gods, who were false gods, these boys knew. And they refuse, and he, like Pharaoh, threatens to execute them for their disobedience. But they say in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you will throw us in the fire and kill us, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These boys knew they had to fear God and obey him more than any earthly king, no matter what that may cost them personally. They, like these midwives, set the right example for us. The apostles in Acts chapter 5 demonstrate the same commitment. When they're told, stop talking about Jesus, stop telling people that he died and rose again, stop telling people that he's God who must be worshipped, they reply to those threatening their lives, we must obey God rather than men. I could give so many more examples of this type of courage demonstrated in the scripture or demonstrated throughout church history as well. Men's commands be any way contrary to the commandments of God. We must obey God and not man. Listen, no power on earth can warrant us, much less oblige us to sin against God, our chief Lord. And here's how we choose to make the right choice. Get this, where the fear of God rules in the heart it will preserve from the snare which the inordinate fear of man brings. You and I will be faced with situations where we have to choose. Do we obey man? Do we obey a command that is sinful? Or do we obey God? And the decision that you will make will come out of what you fear most. Do you fear God more than you fear the price to be paid here? If you fear him, you will stand in this line of so many Christian believers who would stand against evil. But if you fear this world, if you fear the loss you may suffer, if you fear the loss of your property or your family or even your own life, more you will compromise. Where your fear is, your response will be. Christian, we must fear God and worship him above everything else. Do not cower to culture. Do not go along with evil governments. Do not abdicate on the issue of abortion. Do not remain silent about the message of salvation. That's what we see from these examples. The apostles are told, stop talking about Jesus. And they say, no, we must obey God. We must proclaim the gospel. You and I, we must obey God and we must be clear in our day and age that we live in to call out evil and sin for what it is so that we can call people to repentance and belief in the God who forgives sin. Because people today will not understand the need for a savior from sin if they don't understand their sin. Right? So what the Bible calls sin and you need saved from that so they understand just what the gospel message is really about. 
This is what all of our lives, all of our works are supposed to be focused on. This is the primary thing, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the sinners around us who are lost, who are captive in the domain of darkness. We must obey God and we must primarily proclaim his message. So don't misunderstand this and look at these examples and think that the most important issues to be faced are just cultural ones or governmental ones or the issues around our rights and freedoms. Those are important. I'm not saying don't engage in them. I'm saying most important is obey God's command to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. That's primary, the message of Jesus who died to save sinners, who rose again to conquer sin and death, who proved he is the God who must be worshipped. That's our mission more than anything else. That's what the apostles said we must obey God and do. That's primary. So we don't ever want to fall into the trap of becoming religious activists who oppose evil without ever proclaiming the gospel. We're called to much more than that. There's a lot of evil to fight in this world, and if we try to do that, disconnected from the gospel, it will consume us. We live in a dark day. And if we only ever focus on all the things that are going wrong and never bring the light of the gospel into those situations, you and I have become ineffective for the kingdom. We must proclaim the gospel. This is why we as a church have to come in here and focus on the gospel week in and week out. And we need to hear how the gospel bears on these other things. It certainly does. But it's the gospel that's center and primary for us. That's what we need to hear over and over. And that's what we need to grow in our understanding week by week of. That's what we need to work at applying in our lives, in our conversations, day by day as the Lord gives us opportunity. The story of Exodus is primarily about the God who saves his people. And in this instance, he used the women who have many people. But that's only a small part of something far greater. Far more important is the full picture of salvation that we find in the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished. Salvation from sin. Not just prolonged life upon this earth. Salvation from sin. Sin that every human being has. Every human being struggles with. Every human being begins their existence captive to sin that will destroy not just an earthly life, but an eternal one. Jesus came to save there, from that. So we have to understand that each of us, we have moments where we act like Pharaoh and we throw off regard for God and we throw off obedience to his word and we don't follow his leadership and we go after our own desires and our own fears. And for a non-Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not following Jesus, then that's you every day. You don't really care what God has said, despite how you may nod to it, despite checking a box on a census form, I'm a Christian, or telling somebody that you are, it's not enough. Maybe you're not out committing murders, but you live in the same type of state of rebellion and rejection against God, just like Pharaoh. And you need to be saved from your sins. Christians today, we don't sin as spectacularly as Pharaoh did. We're not out enslaving people. We're not ordering executions of children, but you and I are every bit as sinful in our own nature too, and we need to recognize that so we can fight against that. It comes out in various ways in our lives, even as Christians, even as we walked with the Lord for a long time. We need a God who saves us too, and we have one. So all of us need to realize this morning that our deepest need is for God's grace and God's salvation. 
Because apart from his grace and apart from him saving us, we're just as lost as the rest of the world. We would act just as evilly as Pharaoh did if we had the opportunities. But by God's grace, he saves his people, the ones who fear him and worship him, and he uses us to spread the message to others. The love of Jesus, by taking on the wrath that you and I deserve for our sins, it's the most glorious and gracious gift that we could ever receive, and it's given to us by us coming to him with faith. Not with good works to exchange, by faith, simply believing Jesus is God. He did what we cannot do. He died for us. He rose again. He's alive today. We follow him. That's the choice of faith. And when we do that, he gives us everything that we could never obtain any other way. Worship team, if you come this morning, I'm going to lead us in a final song of worship and response. My plea with each of you this morning is to respond to God, to respond to his work of salvation that you have heard and seen in the text of Scripture today. The salvation that God offers us is transformative. When we really receive it, when we really respond to it, it will cause us to live differently. It will cause us to reject evil and to obey God no matter what cost that may bring to us personally. The danger of rejecting God this morning, especially for those of you who are not a Christian right now or those of you who are just pretending to be a Christian by showing up and putting on a show, is that your captivity to sin will not decrease. It will only increase apart from God's grace. If you stay in your posture of rebellion but show up or claim to be a Christian, it's not going to change anything. You have to experience the saving power of the real living God for anything to change. Because if we look at the verse 22, at the very end of this chapter, we see Pharaoh move deeper and deeper into his rebellion. And verse 22 tells us, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just the midwives anymore, all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh moves further and further into his rebellion and his rejection of God. He orders all his people now to openly participate in the murder of God's people through these babies being born. Listen to me. Don't wait to repent of your sins today. Today, Come to him. The God of salvation is still at work and he's here and he will work in the lives of his people who fear him and worship him. So let's take a few moments today to respond to him and to let him work in our lives to plant these seeds into the soil that would produce good fruit before we leave this place. These altars are open. I would love to pray with you if you have any needs or anything you want to talk about. Please come get me. We're going to sing and we're going to worship the Lord before we leave this place asking him to help us respond rightly to who he is and the saving power that he has. Let's worship. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us shown first and foremost at the cross. That there your blood was shed to cover our sins. That there your power to save your people was so clearly seen and demonstrated that today, no matter what we've come into this room with, no matter what sins cling to us today, we can be washed clean of all of that because your grace, your love, your blood is more powerful than anything that would keep us captive. We thank you that you are the God who saves. You are the God who declares right from wrong. You are the God who enables us as we follow you to live courageously in this world, obedient to you rather than the powers around us at opposite kingdom of light.
wherever evicted Christians who share the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us, that has changed us with those we encounter in this world. We thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us, the wonderful chance to sing, the wonderful chance to hear of who you are and what you have done. Lord, I pray it moves us as we leave this place to live as the children of God that we are. It's in your beautiful name we pray, Lord Jesus, and everyone said.